Hello and welcome to the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Brett Ritchie. Brett, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Before we get into this episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter, at BettingPod, and check out the website, businessofbetting.com. Guest suggestions are much appreciated. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Business of Betting podcast. Today I'm joined by Brett Ritchie. Brett, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Brett, you're a poker player turned uh, founder of a, a new company, which we'll get to. Before we start with that, do you want to just tell us about how you got involved in poker in the beginning? And a lot of uh, the guests so far have been sports betting and, and horse racing or bookmaking. So tell us how one gets started in, in the poker world. Yeah, no problem. Um, I was going to college in the early 2000s, right around when the poker boom started in Massachusetts. Um, and I just started playing poker then and I really got into it. And when I graduated college, I could tell I wasn't a great player, but, but I knew how fast I was progressing and I knew I wanted to sort of give it a run as a professional. And so I moved to Boston and then just started playing as a pro. And then I played as a pro for 10 years or so, kind of worked my way all up through the ranks and I really enjoyed it when online was around. And then in 2011, the government shut down online poker. So from 2011 to 2014, I was still a pro. I was living in New York City at the time, playing kind of underground games like Rounders, if you've seen that movie, and traveling to Atlantic City on the weekends and stuff. But I, I kind of hated that lifestyle, the sort of 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. hours. And my girlfriend at the time was working a 9 to 5 and I was just looking for something else to do. So at the end of 2014, I interviewed with FanDuel and DraftKings because I saw Daily Fantasy Sports. I like to play it as a player myself, and it was on this really fast upward trajectory. So I saw a lot of parallels between that and poker. The difference is I wanted to try out the industry side as opposed to the poker side this time around. So I went to interview there, and I wasn't thrilled about being you know, employee a hundred something somewhere. I'd been my own boss for 10 years, but I wasn't, I just wanted to get some experience, um, in any sort of real world type job because I'd just been essentially a gambler my entire post-college career. And during that process of interviewing, I was still playing poker and I was still playing daily fantasy. And as I said, my girlfriend worked a nine to five. I started work around 7 PM, which is when the daily fantasy contest started also. And so I had about a two hour window to sort of hang out with my girlfriend during the week. And that was also the crunch time for DFS. And so I looked around the sort of helper tool market and they were all 
sort of web-based tools for the more serious users. There wasn't anything for the, the casual mobile user, which is essentially what I was. And so I quit uh, interviewing with those companies and moved to Las Vegas to start a mobile app called Blitzpick, which was basically a lineup builder, news alerts for FanDuel and DraftKings users. And we I initially outsourced, I raised money and outsourced the development to an app development shop, which turned out to be a mistake. Um, I, I really just didn't know any better, but we, we ended up with 2015, we got a very basic, like pretty poor quality product. It, it was hard to even try and get traction. And then luckily, um, and then the whole market crashed. The government came into Daily Fantasy toward the end of 2015, and that really just took the entire ceiling away from the industry. And something that went from so hot to just ice cold overnight, it was interesting being a part of that. And we then um, luckily built out our own team, came back for the 2016 NFL season, launched, we redid that, we threw out everything the app shop did, and our internal team built a product that was pretty cool. It worked well, but again, that, that market just wasn't exciting anymore. And the entire reason I started the company back at the start of 2015 was because I was convinced sports betting was going to become legalized in the U.S. within the next five or so years, by 2020 or so. And I wanted to be positioned there because I'd, I'd seen what happened in poker. The people that were in there early made a killing. And so I wanted to get in a good position for legalized sports betting in the U.S. So... We, at the start of, um, so 2016 NFL, we launched our app. We get some decent metrics. Um, we didn't really have a marketing budget. So we were kind of just floating along. And then at the start of 2017, the options were, do we continue to try and fight it out in a pretty saturated DFS space with no upside or look elsewhere? And then at the same time, I looked at the sort of blockchain and crypto markets, which were just about to take off and there was a lot of excitement and momentum there. So we decided to just go straight to the blockchain and build the sportsbook aggregator that we always wanted to build without waiting for the law to change in the US. And so the first half of 2017 was essentially educating ourselves on blockchain technology, having our developers learn how to code in Solidity, looking at the entire marketplace, figuring out how my original vision fit into this blockchain world and how we can use blockchain technology to enhance the sports betters experience. And then the second half of 2017 was essentially preparing for an ICO, which we did in the first quarter of 2018 to raise capital to fund the project. And since then, we've launched our beta. We've launched our sort of main blockchain-powered tool so far, which is recording predictions to the Ethereum blockchain, timestamped against true market odds. And we have a lot more coming soon. So, wow, that's a that's a lot. It's a lot to digest, but it's very interesting. Can you take me back to Brett, the college kid, and I guess looking back now as a young person getting involved in poker? And I think a lot of people listening and a lot of people out there have played poker before whether it's on the weekends or at you know weekly games whatever it might be and aren't professionals haven't spent 10 years as a pro doing it what do you think helped you succeed in those early years well i think one one thing is kind of nobody knew what they were doing so it was just who figured it out faster and, and there were less 
pros out there. It was so new. So a lot of the players were just more recreational guys. And I think it just exploded so fast um, that there was just a big opportunity. And then I think the last thing is I just have like a natural inclination toward poker. I think it just fits in line with my skill set. And so both between working hard and then just being naturally inclined to the game, it put me in a good position. And do you think that's a general trend? A lot of people who were teenagers or in their early 20s that took it on and were relatively successful were sort of hardwired and had the right tools naturally to be able to succeed and then maybe there was some luck or maybe there was some circumstance and factors and they didn't want to work in finance necessarily or something like that and then they they took the poker route and became successful do you think that's one of the main components i think yeah for sure that's one of the main components Uh, like how you said about they didn't want to take the the traditional route if you look at kind of everything i've been in it's been more on the fringe poker daily fantasy crypto sports betting they're not necessarily accepted by mainstream society as much it's getting better but i've I've sort of always liked these sort of i don't want to say cutting edge but kind of on the outlier industries i find pretty fascinating filled with just a lot of unique people and then honestly one of the main things that has helped people like myself and other people in poker is just running hot early like there's plenty of people that are probably would have been very good poker players if they won, you know, they might have lost the first 10 times they played and they're like, okay, screw that. That game's not for me. Whereas the guy that won the first 10 times falls in love with the game and they both have an equal skill set or something and the other guy goes down a completely different path. So I think luck plays a huge role, especially at the early stages of, of finding out if it's something you want to do or not. If you just lose a lot early on in playing a game, it's much less likely that you're going to enjoy it as opposed to if you win early on. Yeah, absolutely. What about the sitting at a table for 10 hours or 10 hours, you know, 10 days in a row? That's what the perception is from the outside. And even in the online era and the online boom, having multiple hands at multiple tables online, people have probably seen those multiple screen scenarios. Is that a key element to be able to do that, you know, grind it out hour after hour? I think it depends on the person. Um, I was I played more in the high stakes where I, I was more of like a two to four table kind of guy. I know some people play like 20 tables at once. That to me was very difficult to do, to play, to just grind that many tables. It was very draining and, and pretty miserable, but other people really liked it. And they just had their sort of um, HUD, basically like a computer script sort of telling you what each player's tendencies are. And they were good at analyzing that easily. And just by putting in the volume, I, like they say about poker, it's a hard way to earn an easy living. So it's definitely can be a grind at times. The, the one thing I really liked about online, I was mostly a cash player. So I, like a tournament player is chained essentially to their computer during the tournament hours every day or certainly every Sunday. Whereas for me as a cash player, I could play when I wanted. So I love the freedom of online. Obviously, sometimes games are really good. And you sort of just force yourself to play when when the game is better than it usually is because you're just making more per hour. So you kind of look as it like in the future, you're going to be much more grateful for putting those hours in. But I really like the freedom that online cash had live. You don't really have the same freedom because you have to drive to the casino. Once you're there, you should really put the hours in. So I liked online. You could play an hour, go for a run, something like that. And obviously the games were pretty good up until 2011 
when the uh, government kind of stepped in. Yeah, so looking back with all your experience, do you have any advice for younger poker players now looking to get into it? And it sounds like it's a very different industry, very different talent pool uh, that are getting involved in poker now. So it might be a, a completely different proponent to be starting out your career in 2019 or 2020 versus you know 2001 yeah i would never do it now to go and try and be a pro i think that the the games just got a lot more difficult as it spread throughout the world there's a lot of talented players russia is a great example when poker first came to russia i remember in i don't know probably the mid 2000s at some point i loved finding Russians and playing with them because it was essentially just the rich guys that, that came in at first. And then Russia is obviously a country where their citizens tend to be quite good at mind games. If you look at chess or something, there's a lot of top Russian players and eventually poker went along the same path. And that, that happened in most countries, any new country where, where poker got introduced and they came online, they were like quite weak players at first. And then over time, they got a lot better. There's so many tools out there for poker players. I think that you could definitely make a fine living playing poker, but back in the day, the ceiling was was much higher as a player than there is now. And so I think to me, and it's what people said to me back then, and I ignored the advice, but you can have a job and then still play poker. And you don't need to just go all in on being a poker pro. And then you're still building up skills. Because I know a lot of people that were in poker for 10 years like myself and then it's now you're in your 30s and it's like oh okay I'm kind of over poker what to do and then you have not necessarily a lot of skills outside poker so I think it's good to diversify I would not go all in on being just a poker player in this day and age so throughout this time were you involved actively on the sports betting side at all you mentioned earlier you transition towards you know daily fantasy and you were thinking about sports betting in the sort of early and mid 2000s were you at all you know betting on the side for fun or anything like that while you're in vegas yeah so i i actually lived in i moved to vegas in 2015 so i never lived in vegas until i quit poker um i was living in new york city and i bet online a fair amount up until 2008 i mean i bet i remember i bet on sports back in college and um, I remember one lesson that I remember is Mississippi State or an LSU were playing. I forget who. It was a college basketball game. One team was ranked number 23 in the country. The other team had like one conference win, but they were home and it was senior night and the line was like pick them. And I bet all my money on whoever was number 23 because I was like, how can they, this team only has one win? This guy, this team's number 23. And it was a good lesson because they lost. And then I was like, oh, maybe there was a reason that that line was pick them if it seemed so obvious that this one team would win. And so I always bet, I would say I was more of a recreational player um, on the sports betting side. Definitely poker was always more of my skill set. I was more of a line shopper, kind of arbitrage, looking at the different markets like Betfair to see where the volume is or Matchbook and trying to gain an edge that way. And then again, just even looking at trying to pick off line movements by watching the European markets in soccer was, was one thing I did a lot champions league and leagues like that where the line would move. And this was back. You couldn't do this anymore because people have figured this out and the books just automate this sort of thing. 
but the you know 6 a.m. on the U.S. the line in Champions League is going crazy over in Europe, and the U.S. hasn't changed their odds yet. So that was an edge, but it wasn't like the edge in poker, and I wasn't betting. You know, I wasn't like getting a ton down. You could get five hundred or a thousand down, maybe a couple thousand. Um, but I have some friends that have just done extremely well betting sports, and they have all these sorts of outs to get bets down. But I never, I never really went that route. I was, I was more of a hobbyist, I would say. But I tried to take. You know, I wasn't just betting for no reason. There was always some logic behind the bets I would make. Yeah. No. And when you say all your money on LSU Mississippi State. All your money you had in your pocket that day, or all your money? It was like, like I mean, I was in college. I had no expenses, right? It was like a few hundred bucks, maybe five hundred bucks. It might have been I won on the site. I mean, like I had, uh, I was living in the dorms. I had the meal plan, so. So you're willing to ride it all on the line for a bit of fun? It sounds like, which is much like yeah. many of the listeners, I'm sure. So sports yeah. betting, did you seriously consider it, or you thought it was, you know? poker was the, the main aim at that time and sports betting was just a side bit of fun and it may not be easy enough in the u.s to be able to uh do it long term yeah i think that just it would have been it would have been hard to transition to get as good as i was at sports betting as i was at poker i think that i never it's something i thought about actually after black friday in 2011 was what and i actually started betting more then and taking it more seriously up until that point I would I would just win money playing poker and then just bet sort of vig free with friends a lot of the time. So I felt, in my opinion, I'm not losing necessarily. But to to take it more seriously between that 2011 to 2014 range. Um, but I never really the one time I looked at taking it seriously was I think 2012 or maybe 2013. I looked into sort of tennis analytics and modeling tennis because I've always one I've liked. I really find tennis pretty fascinating. And then I was just reading some stuff about how the analytics in tennis were way behind a lot of other sports, but they were catching up. Now they had these new sort of measurements that they were taking on the court of different shot speeds and selections and and all sorts of data points that weren't available before. And so I briefly um, experimented with some of the tennis analytics, but I ended up just not honestly just not going and spending enough time on it to get to anywhere where I would be comfortable making money and the other problem is it was hard to bet in the US the odds on in the US or even like offshore sites for tennis were horrible you really needed to be on pinnacle or betfair to get the best price on tennis matches so it made it also less attractive unless I was going to really try and get you know find my way on those sites yeah no that makes sense The Betfair Exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game at betfair.com.au. Switching over now towards Blitz Pick and Blitz Predict uh, as it is now. It sounds like it developed over a number of years and you mentioned some of the daily fantasy companies you were interested in working for. Take us through sort of the mission statement as it's evolved and, and where it sits now with Blitz Predict. Yeah, so um, essentially for on Blitzpick, we wanted the casual mobile user was our target. Essentially, let them compete with the pros, with their the guys spending hours a day on their computer. Let someone come on our mobile app, and in five minutes, 
not necessarily saying that you're going to be equal to or better than them, but you'll have a much better chance against them than you would if you just did it on your own. And essentially kind of like a, a central hub for your daily fantasy news and lineups just in your pocket. And with Blitz Predict, our goal is really just providing information and tools for sports bettors and aggregating the entire marketplace. We want to be the central hub for the sports better. Our real goal is right now, or at least within a few months as we roll out some more features, we want to be the first place that a sports better goes whenever on every day. He wants to take a look at whatever news he wants to see. He wants to find out what the experts think. He wants to find out what our model thinks. He wants to find out where to go bet, where the best odds are. And then eventually we want to be the only place that the sports better goes. Not that we're taking bets ourselves, but we want to be able to incorporate essentially OAuth tokens where you can just bet with other sites just within our platform without ever leaving our ecosystem. So when you looked into the blockchain technology and, and some of the other crypto spaces, what elements did you identify as being critical for the rollout of the, the centralized hub you're talking about? So the, the one feature that we launched with, which I think is really important, is recording predictions to the blockchain timestamped against true market odds. I'm sure a ton of the listeners out there have been on Twitter or they've seen these tout sites with people promising they win 70 or 80 percent or they're putting out 10 unit plays or they're claiming all these things that are not necessarily verifiable. And somebody can even take, oh, here's a CSV of my games that I bet and they can just delete 10 losers or they can say, oh, we had Chicago plus four and then the line really only hit plus two. And there's no way to verify this. So with our platform, we aggregate the whole marketplace odds, Pinnacle, Bet Chris, a ton of other books. And you can make your predictions against whatever the best odds in the market are, but you can't make your prediction against odds that don't exist. And if the line is plus four and it drops to three, you then can't claim that you had it at plus four. It has to be timestamped. And the way this works is once the predictions get sent to the blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, it's immutable. You can never go and change your record. So it's a verifiable way to determine who is actually winning and who's actually losing and which model works and which model doesn't over a large enough sample. So essentially, we're using the blockchain to bring transparency to sports betting, certainly to the tout industry side of things. And then the other main feature of blockchain technology that we're incorporating is smart contract betting. So if say the Steelers are minus seven points and you can set up a smart contract. We haven't, this isn't ready yet, but it will be later this year. Um, Steelers are minus seven points. You can say, okay, if the line hits minus six anywhere in the marketplace, bet two Ethereum for me or bet 10,000 XBP or bet a hundred dollars and then we'll convert it into an Ethereum based token. And you can be sleeping. The line hits six somewhere at a book that accepts these smart contract wagers and your contract will just execute. So we're using smart contracts to essentially just give more power to betters. And then you can also set up a smart contract system to sort of tag along any expert that you like. So if there's some guy that's a proven winner or a model that you want to follow, you could also just say, okay, bet $100 anytime this guy recommends a play. So there's a lot of functions of blockchain technology that that are really helpful. There are drawbacks too. There's some scaling issues right now 
on Ethereum and pretty much any other blockchain. So we don't just put everything on the blockchain. A lot of our stuff, like the aggregator, when we're looking at all the market odds, that's not on the blockchain because it just wouldn't make sense. You need to be instant when you're looking at it's almost like the stock market right and sports betting you can't wait six minutes to find out that the odds changed so we basically use the blockchain for what's necessary and important but we don't just force it where it doesn't make sense yeah no that's interesting so the smart contract betting how many books do you think will be integrated on that will it be a significant volume that you can get down or will it be for the fifty hundred dollar casual fan that um may not have time may have a job maybe like you know what I'll take the Falcons minus two and a half, you know, minus one ten. Uh, but I'm not going to bother if they're, you know, minus three, minus three and a half, and they're at work all day and they just want to put it in. So that's a great question. We've gotten a positive response from the blockchain-based sports books and prediction markets that we've talked to about this. I think that there will be there'll be plenty of volume there. I mean, certainly more than fifty or a hundred dollars. Uh, maybe if if we have a mass scale of people looking for the same bet. That could change, but this actually brings a benefit to the sports book also because these smart contracts are open source. So they, the sports book can actually see if their line is at seven, oh wow, there's 50,000 sitting at six and a half. So they then can make their own judgment on where their books are and maybe they want to take 10K of it or 20K or they want it all and then they realize that they can move their line. So this is something that's going to benefit the sports books also because it's not like it sneaks up on them. They don't move their line and then suddenly they just get, they take wages they don't want. They'll be able to see essentially where the market is demanding if the line moves. And so some of the more traditional books, that's a trickier area. Really, we have to wait and see how the U.S. rolls out. Everybody right now, including us, is concerned about just being a good actor and um, not jeopardizing legal status in the U.S. and the ability to participate in the U.S. market. So it's something that for someone like William Hill in New Jersey to accept smart contract wagering, that that is going to be – that's not something that we're going to know soon. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think those who uh, have sort of tracked and followed Betfair, you can see sort of the volume on each side and the, the back and lay and – um, I think it's just it's good to have more market intelligence. If those smart contracts yeah. are on a dashboard or on some sort of format which bookmakers can use, they can see potential volume that's coming and, and use it positively for them. And also, I'm sure the people that are betting can say, "Look, everyone's gonna, everyone wants minus six and a half here. Maybe I'll get, um, you know, maybe I'll get better odds myself if I just wait a little bit. If I'm going the other way on the line, so it's it's pretty mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, and we love transparency, so that's something where we can. We're not going to try and hide that data. We're happy to show essentially what our community, what our users are interested in because it benefits everybody. More volume, more liquidity in the space is just a positive all around. And do you see it being only pre-match in the beginning or have you thought about the live betting experience as well in terms of this? Not in terms of the... That's a good question in terms of the, the smart contracts. That The problem is that the right now... With the current scalability of Ethereum, it wouldn't make sense because you might have to wait minutes for your smart contract to resolve. And if it's live betting, then things can change and suddenly you're getting um, odds that you didn't wouldn't want at that time. 
So for that, we're focused on pre-match, but we have a lot planned for live betting in general, both with the aggregator and on the esports side of things, which really excites us. We're having, um, we'll be in both in live uh, and traditional sports also, we'll be streaming. We'll have essentially different experts watching a game along with our users and giving out advice and even crowdsourcing some advice too is something a lot of people have interest in. Like if we have say 20 different experts make a prediction on a game, a user just won't, might want the consensus of that. They don't necessarily care about a specific expert. So we're, we're going to do some cool things around both sort of crowdsourcing and, and incentivizing collaboration and then also live betting because live betting is becoming just so popular. Um, it's just in terms of implementing blockchain technology to live betting, there's some scaling issues right now. So we'd be more, more focused on pre-match for the blockchain side of things and then um, looking at like live betting, you can still record your prediction. That's fine. You can say, I think you can make live bets as predictions, but in terms of like smart contract betting, that's going to be a bit away, but it was something we, that's something we'd love to do also. Yeah. So it sounds like it's all the paper level at the moment. Um, the time stamping of the, the odds and the, you know, potential bet is at the paper level. And at some point it'll go live in terms of an actual sports book integrated. Yeah. We want to have, um, yeah, like right now we're going to have sort of, I guess you could call it like the European model of click through to these sites to bet fairly soon. But the goal eventually is to just have them kind of living within our platform also and just have this one sort of place that it's the only place you need to go. Yeah, no, that makes sense. What about building models? A lot of people I talk to struggle with it potentially if they're certainly if they've been doing a long time and want to basically take their process which might be manual might be some sort of gut feeling or not even gut feeling but years of analysis and expertise and experience they've had and they just you know intuitively know what they're doing or even subconsciously come to the right outcome more than they don't those people will they be able to come on your platform potentially one day and put in their key variables and and a site like yours might be able to help with building a model yeah that's something we we want to do um, and even put people together that might have two different uh, strengths and they can work together. So we have our own, our director of analytics worked nine years for a syndicate here in Las Vegas. He built models and we're exploring some sort of AI deep learning neural net models as well in terms of having our own models on our site. We're going to have very soon a way for people with their own models on GitHub or whatever, essentially a very easy API where people can just point their model to post their predictions without having to manually post because we really want to attract that the data scientist, academic professor, sports analytics crowd, not necessarily, um, you know, only like a Twitter um, tout group. It's I want, everyone should be involved in this platform. And then once we have... Once we're a little farther along, that is something we plan to do is sort of that, as you say, help people build their own model, right? You can tweak, you can put your own variables in or tweak, or we can have recommended variables. These are the 10 most important or 20 most important for this sport. And you can sort of weigh them accordingly and see how they um, work. So yeah, that's, that's pretty, we want to help people get better is one of our main focuses. Come on our platform and learn how to become a better sports better and that is a really good way to do it yeah no and building your own models 
and then having smart contract betting into the future is pretty interesting, especially for those that might be time poor and, and want to be able to automate a lot of things and, and not have to manually go through the process of being a, a sports better as it is largely these days. Yeah, definitely. So how are you planning on growing and scaling? Are you just going to have more and more users and more and more integration with potentially bookmakers down the line, more and more features, and then that'll take care of itself? Or do you have sort of a, a plan in terms of scaling as, as you grow? Yeah, we have a plan. Right now, we're still in the early stages, so we're not aggressively marketing. We're focused more on the building side and then getting finding the people that are that are really interested in the journey. That's one of the fun things about an ICO is people get to participate really from the early stages of a project and see the growth throughout the entire journey. It's it's very organic and we post weekly updates, we do videos and people can really see how the project progresses, but in terms of the mass market type user, we're not quite ready as a platform to be where we're going to relentlessly market and try and bring everybody on. One, we need to see how the U.S. market opens up. And two, we just have a few more months, I would say, of, of really putting in the core features and streamlining everything to the point where we're going to be able to keep that mass market user on our platform. So, But with, within, in regards to that, we believe more in an organic marketing I think both sports bettors, esports fans, crypto users are all very particular. They do not really look like to be targeted by a paid ad of some sort. I don't think that that really works. I think they're going to, especially when you're offering advice or helping them to become better, I think they find that to be disingenuous. So you need to find more authentic channels to reach users. And so that's really where our focus is, sort of organic marketing in bringing people on that get excited about what we're trying to build. Yeah, and I think certainly in the US, we learned pretty quickly paid advertising in daily fantasy uh, didn't go so well, let's put it that way. And as you see sports betting roll out in the US, the European style of marketing with enormous marketing budgets, um, you know, customer acquisition being one of the sole focus of their businesses, that's going to be an interesting rollout. So, given you know, it sounds like you're taking a little bit of a different tact. It might be a, it might be a good idea rather than taking on some of those behemoths who are going to be you know going down that path straight away. Yeah, that's a great point you made, and it's something we've discussed. So, someone like Betfair, or Patty Power, those guys aren't competitors to us. We want to drive traffic to them. Part of our business model is interacting with them. But when it comes to targeting a user. We are in, we would be in competition with them if we tried to play their game, um, and they they have they're a billion dollar company, so they're going to have a much larger marketing budget. It just wouldn't make sense for us to try and I know how expensive the cost per acquisition of a sports better is, and we can't just try and compete with those guys on a pure cash basis. We have to be more creative. So I don't know if you, this is a dumb question, but do you know why the tout presence in the U.S. is so big and strong? And I've lived in. Australia, the U.S., Caribbean, Europe, and there's just nothing like the U.S. tout presence, and I don't understand it really, and I, it just baffles me every day how big and strong and powerful it is, and what, what is your take on all of that, given you're in the industry now and you probably are experiencing it just like I have? That's, that's a really good question, and I think, one, obviously, the just dynamics of an American versus a Brit versus an Australian are somewhat different. It's different cultures to some extent. 
Um, but I think that probably the main reason would be the difference in legality with it being legal everywhere in Britain. I don't know. I think there must be something about it being underground that leads to the tout presence where people in America really like to follow advice of these guys. And maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's, I honestly don't have a great answer because if it's legal everywhere, then people might want advice also. So honestly, I don't know. Americans just, they feel like some guys just know what they're talking about. And there's some guys that are very good at marketing themselves. I will say that even if they're not necessarily winning, they've really marketed them themselves as someone that knows what they're talking about. Yeah, it's bizarre. It really is bizarre. Anyway, um, so in terms of this sort of area, you mentioned the time-stamped sort of recorded bets that can only be placed with odds that actually exist. You know, what's the... I guess that could potentially eliminate the tout business if it's done in the right way. Uh, what's sort of the expectation moving forward from that type of product offering in the U.S.? So we, the reason we started with that is that product is legal in the U.S., right? Selling information. And, and again, we have our own models that we post on our platform also. And there, there's a significant education challenge to let people know that the guy that's like, I'm eight and two in my last 10 games, that that's meaningless and that he's a lifetime 48% and he's losing massively. Um, so there's certainly an educational challenge, but ultimately if you're a winner, you're going to want to be on our platform because you can prove that you're a winner as opposed to being on any of these other sites, which are just kind of rife with fraud. And so eventually I think that uh, the quality people are going to be on our platform because in the quality models would want to be able to prove that they are actually winning over time. And then users are going to demand that as users learn more, as I said, there's an educational challenge, but as people realize and figure it out that a lot of these other people are just straight up lying to them that, that we are not, and you can verify exactly what everyone's record is. I think that people will want that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I have no doubt about that. So tell me about the World Cup project you had going on and, and what were some of the challenges you found with that, if any? So that that would actually be a great question for Robert, our director of analytics, because he built a World Cup model for the first time. He'd never modeled soccer before. And it's approximately break-even right now. I believe it's up or down like 0.7 units. But he predicted every game on the the one by two market, the win, loser, draw. And the challenge was, um, I, he's better to speak on this, but I'll, I'll say a couple of the challenges he faced. One is he wasn't factoring in the draw enough at first in terms of he, he always felt the draw was like less significantly less likely than the markets did, which means that it wasn't being factored in quite enough. And then the other challenge is, and this is actually the main challenge, is that the World Cup, these teams don't play together very often. The World Cup only happens every four years, and there's not that many games. So it's really hard to model a sport with so little data. Most of these players play way more on their European club teams or wherever they play. And so it's a big challenge to model essentially a fairly high-variance sport that happens occasionally with players that don't usually play together. That's hard to do. Um, however, 
there is so much excitement around betting the World Cup, the volume is massive that even say like a top syndicate or something, they're still going to be in the World Cup because they may not be extremely accurate. They just need to be more accurate than the other people. So really, I think that that's the main challenge in the World Cup. It's just there's not enough data to really reliably model it well, as opposed to baseball, where his model has done quite well in baseball because there's so much data, there's so many games. Eventually, over the season, a good model is going to win in baseball, whereas World Cup, I feel could easily lose. Yeah, and you're right. There's there's not that many games, so it would be hard to even know if that model was, you know, sample size or small sample size or there was some luck involved and, you know, a few results either way might swing. But one question I'm curious about, uh, given I'm sure you've done a deep dive into the U.S. market, potential rollout, you know, potential states, all that type of stuff, not necessarily from an operator's perspective, but what are you seeing in terms of any gaps or would you have any advice for those looking to come to the U.S. either to work in this industry or, you know, come over and um, start a business, whatever it might be, what are some of the things that you've sort of noticed from the from the outset or as you've sort of evolved uh, your business here in the U.S.? Well, I'll say this. If anybody out there has any experience on the bookmaker side, there is going to be huge demand as they open up all these sort of brick-and-mortar sports books throughout the U.S. for anybody with any sort of operating experience right now. In the U.S., most of these people are just concentrated in Las Vegas. And if you look at how casinos expanded throughout the U.S., they're going to be opening hundreds of sports books, if not more, throughout the U.S. And they're going to need people to work in there. So that's one that I feel is like a a very safe sort of like can't lose. If you have any experience there, you're going to be able to get a pretty good job if that's something you're interested in. Um, another thing is it's going to be competitive, obviously, on on the casino side i would not unless you're already an established player as a sports book i would not even bother trying to get involved i think it's going to be one of these areas where the established sort of las vegas companies and then even the patty power betfair who have a significant assets of american companies and, and have already been working uh in new jersey the big the biggest european behemoths are coming in but but someone like a sort of a gray market Caribbean operator, they're not going to be allowed in the U.S. And so I think that the area to focus on more instead of the casino side is more the area we're in, the affiliate content news uh, tools side, which is competitive. It's quite competitive. There's a lot of people out there doing similar things to what we're doing. But um, to me, it's like much less competitive than something like trying to be the house because you're just up against multiple billion dollar companies that are already established and have government ties and you'll probably just get shut out yeah no that makes a lot of sense so before i let you go what's the best way to test the platform or get involved or you know spend half an hour an hour or so just getting used to what some of the features might be what's the best way for people to sign up or is it just as easy as going on the site yeah just go to the site blitzpredict.io and you can follow us on Twitter. And the best way to communicate with us is either email. You can just email feedback at blitzpredict.io or join our Telegram. On Telegram is where a lot of the community chat happens during matches, people asking any features. And then if you have any questions, you can just message me on Telegram or on Twitter. I'm at Brett Ritchie, B-R-E-T-T-R-I-C-H-E-Y. And happy to answer any questions. 
Awesome, Brett. Thank you very much for your time. It was fun to chat. There's a lot going on in the US, so I know people are very interested and will follow along uh, Blitz Predict throughout the journey, and I wish you all the very best. All right, perfect. Thanks for having me on.